You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to 30 to Curtain, a Center Theater Group podcast. I'm Michael Ritchie, Artistic Director of the Center Theater Group. For each episode of this podcast, we talk with some of the talented artists working with us across our three stages, the Amundsen Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, and the Kirk Douglas Theater. Our guests on this episode are playwright Lucas Nath and director Les Waters, who join us for the world premiere of Dana H. Lucas returns to us having last brought his play The Christians to the Mark Taper Forum in 2015, also directed by Les. Lucas is now fresh off two recent Broadway triumphs, A Doll's House Part Two and Hillary and Clinton. Les was the artistic director of Actors Theatre of Louisville from 2012 to 2018 and has collaborated with Lucas on a number of projects over the years. Our director of communications, James Sims, caught up with Lucas and Les in the lobby of the Douglas as the two took a break from rehearsals to discuss their creative process and what little can be said about this play, which is full of surprises. As you'll hear Lucas describe, he sees Dana H. very much as a black box recording, and that the audience need only understand what they hear and experience during the play. All that you really need to know about its plot is that it is a deeply personal story for Lucas that recounts the harrowing true story of the five months Dana, a psych ward chaplain, and also Lucas's own mother, was held captive, trapped in a series of Florida motels with her life in the hands of a patient and ex-convict. I hope you enjoy this conversation and we look forward to seeing you at the theater. Can you talk about how your collaborative relationship started? What was that first project? We met in 2012 at the Humana Festival of New American Plays when Lucas's play Death Tax uh, was part of that festival. And then our first collaboration was on The Christians at Actors Theatre. And then it, you know, was here in New York. And then we recently did The Thin Place at Actors Theatre. Both plays were commissions and that will be in New York later this year. Yeah. How would you describe the relationship between playwright and director for you? Has it, is it different on each project you approach? Have you guys built up a rapport together having? 
worked closely on a few key projects? Um, well, I do think we have a rapport. Yeah. I mean, we have probably a similar, similar taste in theatricality, maybe. Um, I, I think our rhythms of work may be in sync. But maybe, Lucas, what do, you, what do you remember about that first time working with Les on a, on a project? I'm sure there's a level of intimacy involved in giving your play over to a director and having that vision sort of, you know, added on to what you've written, perhaps. Sure. I, it's, it's, it's very much a brain meld, isn't it? It's, you know, we, we don't, there's not much need to talk that much. We just look at each other and know what the other is thinking. And you'll know when I want to sort of plow ahead and do script stuff. And I think the, I think the really reductive way to talk about it is, um, I have a, I have a tendency towards, um, having everything be extremely logical mm-hmm. and you have a comfort with mystery that um, uh, you know pulls me back from where you know any any spots where I've let the thing get uh, a little more a little looser a little more mysterious uh, you've been good at you're, 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 you're very tuned into knowing where to preserve that. And, and um, you're more comfortable with emotion than I am. So it's... <laughs> yeah, I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Working on world premieres, uh, Les, as a director, uh, I'm sure is... Uh, is it different than working on a perhaps second, third, fourth production or a classic? I mean, there's there, there's something new to be found in the process, perhaps. And uh, you guys have worked on Dana H here, which we can talk a little bit about uh, as a world premiere. This is the first time it's really coming together in, in front of a, a paid audience. What is that, if, if, if at all any different than a directing process on something else? Or do you approach it the same way when you're on a project? It is different. I mean, I mean, I suppose if you're directing a classic play, what you want to make is something with the feeling that it's new, you know, that that it's discovered again. Um, and with a new play, um, it, it's, it, I mean, it's scary, which is fine. What, um, and it's enjoyable because you're the, well, as a director, you're the first person going into that territory. And sometimes it feels like you're going completely into the dark. And, and other times it's, it's, uh, it, it, it illuminates itself pretty easily as you're going through. But what it is when you first go into a rehearsal can often be very different with the thing that's finally presented to an audience. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, it's what I've done most of my career. Um, and it's a great opportunity to, like, camp out in somebody else's imagination for a 
period of time. And Lucas, as we're in this moment right now with Dana H, where it is this first real production in front of an audience, uh, what is it? What is that process like for you as the playwright going into the sort of rehearsal, the creative process, and now the presentation process of watching an audience experience this work? Uh, how does that arc change for you as the playwright and the creator of these projects to experience it in these different iterations now being in the staged, fully staged in front of an audience moment of the show. It's, it's, uh, maybe, maybe I'm in the part of the arc where it's hard to explain what the arc is or the arc isn't visible. No, it's just, you know, you have your to-do list of work to do on the play and you know there's a date where you don't get to do that anymore, at least not until the next run of it. Yep. So it's, 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 my answer is horribly uninteresting. There's literally a to-do list I have on a document, and I'm checking things off. And and uh, it's just, you know, you, you keep listening to it and try to hear the thing as though you've never seen it or heard it before. And you keep doing that as long as you can until you can't. And then you're kind of useless. What role does the audience play on specifically like a world premiere first audience, which just was here at the Douglas experiencing day and age for the first time? Does that play a part in your sort of constant work until opening night? Uh, yeah, it, it does on a new play because the audience come in with clean ears. You know, I mean, we've been sitting in a room for many weeks and you suddenly you know, can get, well, can they hear that? Is that, is that clicking in? What, is this going too fast? Is it going too slow? Are they ahead of the thing? In which case, what do you do? I mean, it's a shock when they arrive. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Has there been anything that stood out for you here on this production, seeing how we just went through those first couple performances? I think the rhythm of it is very interesting. You know, I mean, like, we all know it very well. And, and is the piece kind of holding the audience in its hand, you know, and moving them forward? So that's interesting. With Dana H, specifically knowing that there's a lot of this play that we don't want to talk about in depth now or really ever for the audience perspective, that, that there's a bit of this play that the audience is just going to come to understand when they experience it. Uh, Lucas, can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you, that we sort of let the play speak for itself and, and not really get into a lot of the details of, of what is happening and why it's happening the way it does in the show? Some of it's just... Uh you want it to remain a surprise for the audience. There's that sort of, um, that, that reason for it. The, the, I, I am generally not, 
comfortable saying anything about what happens in the play, in part because it is a play about my mother and I was present for some of the events of the play. And, and so it is, it is um, you know, there, there's this semi, at least for me, semi-autobiographical aspect to it. To talk about it in interviews means that people will ask me further questions about the events, and I, I feel as though the, the play is kind of this black box recording. Um, you, you, you watch it, and there will not be any in additional information about it. Um, you, you, don't, you don't go see Hamlet and ask further questions about what he was like as a child, but you do tend to do that when you know that you have access to people who lived the events of the story. But I am asking that people sort of receive it as uh, a, a, a story on its own terms and not seek out supplementary information. Uh, Les, have you worked on projects before that have dealt with real people and real events? Or, or have you mostly focused on the sort of world of fiction and I'm trying to think. Um, I don't think I have, you know. Um, I worked for a long while in England in my former existence as an English person um, with a theatre group called Joint Stock, which, I mean, was interview-based, but then the, the interviews were, tra you, know, you know, the people were, often two interviewees were turned into one character on stage. No, I think this is a first. What about Dear Elizabeth? Where does that fall? Well, I did Sarah Rule's Dear Elizabeth, which was the letters of Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop. Um, but... No, that that didn't feel. I mean, that I haven't. You know, that was their words. Uh, well, this is Dana H's words. No, it somehow feels different. Well, that that for me as a director was very research based, and this isn't. I'd love to talk about the form of this play, Dana H. Um, in that, there's a pre-recorded audio uh, component to the show that. Deirdre, the actress playing Dana in this, is in fact not using her own voice. I think that opens up such an interesting avenue of creativity and I imagine challenges or unique opportunity for you, Les, as a director, to direct an actress in movement alone, right? No, no vocal uh, work to be done. Could we talk just a little bit about, Lucas, maybe starting with you, what it is like as someone who is often a playwright writing the words from your own imagination to, in this point, doing something different in that you're working off of pre-recorded audio and, and, Les, what that means for you as a director and how that changes the game, if at all, for how you approach it. I mean, it, it, is, it is, of course, undeniably different from how I write most of my plays, and yet at the same time, the, the way that I write is I will spend a period of time essentially just vomiting up text um, until I get somewhere between 200 and 400 pages of material. And then I, then the writing process is just simply um, organizing that material and arranging it and, and uh, 
uh, I've always thought of it as being, uh, I've always found it useful to think about that part of the writing process is going into the editing room with footage that I went out and collected. So when I knew that I wanted this play to be composed from transcripts, um, I went ahead and just took the transcripts and organized them like I would any of my other plays at that point in the process where I stop and and uh, you know, I, I figure out what are the the compelling moments. I title each of them, and I start arranging them. Um, and uh, uh, so, the the thing that this has also opened up is not only composing with words and sentences, but um, you're we're composing the play with. Uh, utterances, um, sighs, laughs, uh, those all become tools for the storytelling. Um, and also, uh, you know, I, I, when I assembled the first draft of it, I had no idea, because I didn't listen to the recordings, I only worked off of the transcripts and that was intentional, but I had no idea if the cadences were going to line up because I was using material from um, all over the place from different days and and in many hours. Uh, so 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 composing the story out of um, her tone of voice and the speed with which she's speaking, that was another mm -hmm. um, tool. As a director, working with an actress, beyond just the vision of the show, you're, you're directing Deirdre, the, the actress. Um, what is that process like with this conceit that she's not using her own voice throughout the entire play? Well, it should have been head-bangingly difficult um, because, I, I mean, or like a huge challenge because I have no experience of lip-syncing. Um, and it's not been because of... Uh, three people, really. Misha, the sound designer. Steve, um, who worked with Dee Dee on lip syncing. And because of Dee Dee, really, who, who is, what is she? Immensely kind, very funny, very generous, and sort of genius at it. And the tone of Dana's voice or the rhythm of what she, how she's speaking on the tapes dictates a lot of what Dee Dee does. Lucas, uh, I believe Steve had been telling us in a previous interview that you two had sort of played around with the idea of lip syncing before that, uh, I, that? I wrote a, I wrote a play that was written in, uh, that was, that was written to be lip synced. Um, many, many years ago, probably 2004, 2005. Um, that was the first experiment with that. And, and uh, I knew that Steve had had, uh, Steve Schiffo had had experience with lip syncing, um, working with lip synca. And so I, I brought him in um, f 
offer advice about how to make that play work. So, uh, uh, yeah, that was the first. That was the first experiment with lip syncing. What, what what intrigued you by that concept? Like, what led you to even experiment with that form? Um, it goes back to when I was in grad school. I got really interested in the work of this director, uh, director who who has since passed, uh, Reza Abdo, um, who would. Uh, a number of his plays were written to be lip-synced, and um, uh, they they allowed him a certain kind of narrative freedom because there's this implicit understanding that the thing that you're watching is on a kind of track, um, and. Uh, uh, so it, it it even goes back as far as grad school. I was doing experiments in one of Richard Schechner's classes with lip syncing. Um, so it goes back even further than that play from 2005. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I was just interested in theatrical conventions that can share some of the burden that, um, you know, uh, certain narrative structures typically uh, uh, um, take responsibility for. This is a co-production with the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Uh, so it has its world premiere here in Los Angeles at the Kirk Douglas Theater, and then it moves to Chicago. What happens with the creative process between here and there? Is there any more, will you look back at the piece once the run's complete and do anything between the two, or is that unknown at this point? I think it's unknown. I'm sure we'll talk. Yeah. <coughs> There'll be some conversation. Thinking of Center Theater Group, The Goodmen, uh, Lucas, uh, Les, your previous work as the artistic director uh, at Actors Theater, Louisville, could you talk about the role nonprofit theater has played in your careers, Lucas, clearly a lot of your work is coming out of the nonprofit theater world. Like what is that role in the American theater construct and, and maybe just speaking a little bit about how it really allows things like this, this true sort of new form of sorts and new experience to happen and get an audience in front of it. What are your thoughts on the state of nonprofit theater and its importance in the culture right now. Well, my sort of my American career has mainly been in nonprofit regional theater, and I've done. I, I mean, my New York work tends to be work that I was commissioned by a regional theater, and has moved to New York. Um, so these places that can commission writers and artists to make work and give you the time and facilities to do it are, are, are remarkable. And, you know, I worked at Actors Theatre for six and a half years and the Humana Festival, I suppose, is still part of the engine that moves the thing along. And, um, for young artists, it's not easy to get a break um, or to, and to be able to do your work at a bigger scale that you usually do. Les talks about young writers perhaps getting a break that might come only by way of 
regional nonprofit theater sort of being a place. Do you remember, can you talk about perhaps your first break or what you remember of really having an opportunity to see your words brought to the stage? Well, the, the, the first um, uh, full-length play of mine that was professionally produced, I mean, before that it was 10 years of um, putting up anything I could in whatever free space I could get with dollar store props. Um, and then Actors Theatre Louisville produced my play Death Tax. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the fact is most, most theater is not for profit theater. <laughs> That's, the commercial theater is, 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 uh, represents a, an incredibly small percentage of theater that gets done. Um, and, uh, it, it may be more amplified, I guess, but, um, uh, but most theater is, is in, in the not-for-profit sector. Um, so, so it's, it's also hard to speak generally about it because it's basically, well, that's all of theater. In the case of Actors Theater Louisville, it was a place where I was, uh, given, um, remarkable freedom to fail with as little interference as possible. Um, you know, it was just, they came to me and, and asked me what I needed to do the play. Um, and that's, you know, uh, uh, ideally how it works. Speaking of the, I guess, dichotomy of most theater being nonprofit, you've had some very recent high-profile opportunities in the in the Broadway universe, the, the for-profit world. Does that change anything for you as a playwright? What, what, does that open new doors for you? Um, I mean, you, you definitely have, for instance, Doll's House Part Two certainly had origins in the nonprofit space, but then went to Broadway, as does uh, Hillary and Clinton, right? There was sort of that pre-New York iteration of the work. What changes for you when it does go to Broadway and, and have a much more commercial sensibility about it and how it's handled? Honestly, in my case, very little. It's because I, I worked with a producer, Scott Rudin, who, when we did Doll's House Part Two, asked me how I like to work. And because Actors Theatre of Louisville and the Humana Festival trained me for you know, trained me to know what I, what I want to ask for. I, I actually literally said to him, I want to do this like I work on plays at Humana. And, and he said, okay. So, so it, it you, you know, there, there is significantly more press you have to do. That changes the experience a lot. And, and uh, there's, there's other things, but the actual process of working um, for me, and, and I'm very happy to say, has been very similar to my experiences in the not-for-profit world. You've been listening to 30 to Curtain, a Santa Theatre Group podcast. You can find out more about Dana H., our organization, and upcoming productions on our website at centertheatregroup.org.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 